Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jerry Leesman, who is Professor of Neuro and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Haifa and Director of the National Institute for Brain and Rehabilitation Sciences in Nazareth, Israel. He is Editor-in-Chief of the journal Functional Neurology, Rehabilitation and Ergonomics. He is a Fellow of the Association for Psychological Science. He is a Senior Member of the Engineering and Engineering in Medicine and Biology Society in IEEE and a Life Fellow of the International Association of Functional Neurology and Rehabilitation. Welcome, Jerry. Good afternoon. Uh, I want to start with one of your papers uh, entitled The Neurological Development of the Child with the Educational Enrichment in Mind in which you say early life events can exert a powerful influence on both the pattern of brain architecture and behavioral development. Uh, the paper also examines the nature of nervous system plasticity, the nature of functional connecti- connectivities in the nervous system, and the application of connectography to better understand the concept of functional neurology that can shed light on approaches to instruction in preschool and primary education. Could you talk a bit about that paper? Of course. Um, Probably should need some background before we begin. Um, At conception, um, a single cell, now fertilized, is 1 175th of an inch in diameter. Sometime during the course of the next two years and nine months, and I'm not getting into a political debate about what happens before birth, um, roughly about 60% of the uh, adult brain is developed. And over the course of early childhood, roughly about 90%. So most of the brain develops from conception to through uh, the first few years of life. Yeah. The brain has a tendency to, not tendency, the brain is plastic. That means it's malleable, it's flexible, and it's highly receptive to learning. The reason, in fact, that we have a brain at all is uh, because we move. 
and if we didn't move, uh, we probably would have no reason for a brain. So, for example, you can take um, the sea anemone or the sea squirt, rather, yeah. uh, that floats around the ocean, and um, with a brain or a rudimentary brain and nervous system. And when it finally finds a rock on which to attach itself, it no longer has a need for a brain because it's not moving anywhere. And so, what it proceeds to do is to digest. Mm. Uh, it's a uh, nervous system. Um, so movement is critical to the whole issue of brain development. And underneath that is the notion of neuroplasticity, which is the flexibility of these kinds of connectivities. Yeah. So, um, for example, you can have a child with a condition like Rasmussen syndrome, mm -hmm. which is a form of intractable epilepsy, usually starting prior to the age of about three. And unfortunately, the treatment for that, the accepted treatment for that is hemispherectomy. That is the removal of half the brain of uh, the young child. However, the consequences of that kind of drastic surgery are really not that great. There may be some spasticity uh, lateralized, but in fact, uh, the child progresses cognitively and motorically normally. Mm. On the other hand, if you did the same thing to an adult, you would render that adult profoundly uh, impaired in so many, many different ways, depending upon where the surgery is. Yeah. So you can see fundamental differences in how it is that the brains of children are developing versus what has happened after that development in the case of the adult model. So what that means in very practical terms is that the brain in early childhood is malleable, it's flexible, it's plastic, and it's highly receptive to learning, to cognition, to uh, interaction with the environment that's laid down pretty much early in life. And we build connections. These connectivities um, allow us to automate behavior without thinking about it too much because it's more optimal that way. Right. But it doesn't mean that it's not amenable to change. So I guess the answer to your question is early childhood is the place for early education and educational intervention because of the nature of the brain and the nervous system. Yeah. Take into account that movement and cognition interact with each other in profound ways. Yeah, so in, um, in, in computer parlance, um, would it be correct to say, Jerry, that you know, uh, the brain, uh, the initial brain has a very, very basic operating system uh, but it doesn't really have any any applications on it, and and essentially all the applications developed during that first two three years uh, are very dependent on uh, what it actually what environment it's in and what kind of stimuli it gets. Right. Correct. Well, I'd be a little careful about using. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I live in the world. Of computer science, I'd be a, a, a little careful about using um, computer analogies. Yeah. Uh, the reason is because the brain, well, computers operate in terms of zeros and ones. Yeah. The brain kind of does that. It doesn't actually do it, but it kind of does that. Because if we were to take a look at the inner workings of dendritic networks, we'd probably see those that would be associated with excitatory versus inhibitory networks. And that would be roughly equivalent to the concept of zeros and ones. But it really isn't the same thing because in the computers, you're dealing with digital circuits, electricity at 186,000 miles per second. Whereas in the case of 
um, electrochemical transmission, you may be talking numbers like anywhere from about one or two to 15 meters per second. Yeah. So it's a whole lot slower. But yeah, it's useful for us to better understand how it is the brain functions by looking at computer um, analogies. And so back to your question, the um, one can look at the fact that we're born with uh, a fundamental operating system. We can see that in the terms of primitive reflexes uh, that disappear after the first year of life. And what the child's function is, what the neonate and infant's function is, is to develop as many apps as possible, using your term, yeah. which really are um, laying down automated networks and circuitry so that behavior becomes more automatic in nature. But yeah, you could conce conceive of brain development as a, um, an operating system at birth and apps developing over the course of the first bunch of years of life. Right, right. And, and this has been sort of, um, sort of the understanding, right? We have always been told that the first few years are very important uh, from a brain development perspective. Uh, and even, you know, they were, uh, and I want to get your perspective on it, um, even before birth, exposing, uh, exposing um, you know, the brain to uh, music and other types of things um, were considered to be good things. Is there any, any data around that that we can see? Well, I need to be careful with this response. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing, we're doing uh, a fair amount of work in uh, fetal behavior yeah. uh, right now. However, there, were, there has been some stuff in the relative, I'll call it relative pop literature, that listening to Mozart uh, may have an effect on uh, pushing the cognitive envelope of the developing fetus and penultimately neonate and infant. Yeah. The answer to that one is there's absolutely no basis to come to that conclusion whatsoever. Mm. However, what we can do, and in fact what we have done, is we've looked at uh, fetal responses um, at using ultrasound means and other kinds of technologies to see how they respond to, let's take a look at music in general. Yeah. So that if you introduce a fetus uh, to music through during the course of pregnancy, yeah. um, and then postpartum, post-pregnancy, post after birth, they're introduced to many different kinds of music. There will be a pressure, preferable responsivity to the music that, the feed, that was heard during fetal development. Mm -hmm. So there's something that's sticking in there. Um, also, mother's uh, emotional state um, that's associated with elevated cortisol levels that associated with stress, uh, uh, the stress of the mother, are also find their way into the fetus as well. So there's a lot that happens during fetal development, behaviorally and cognitively, that does play out later on. There's a, the, the, the literature is very conflicted on a number of things that relate, for example, to the sense of agency or action, yeah. where infants can copy um, a parent, but we really don't know if they're copying or if they were actually doing something like this during fetal development. And without getting into detail, it's, it's complex. Mm -hmm. However, fetuses do learn. Yeah. And um, so in general, yeah, fetal development as it relates to the cognitive part uh, and what happens to the fetus 
from the outside environment to the inner environment is important. That's as it relates to cognition. Yeah. As it relates to environmental stressors, and that's not just the emotional state of the mother, that's also toxicities of various kinds. Mm. Um, yeah, there is a significant effect in fetal development that can, some people claim, can lead children to the autistic spectrum um, that might relate to uh, long-term disabling effects behaviorally and otherwise. So fetal development is profoundly important for early child development. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, Jerry, you know, is there a downside also if, if early stimulus is forcing the brain to specialize, would it sort of start the process of pruning and, and, and essentially, you know, by birth, you have more of a specialized brain, would it, would it actually start to lose some plasticity? I would say no, okay. because the issue of neuroplasticity is something that, uh, um, well, it's there, but the brain is growing. It's not uh, decreasing in size. It's not pruning networks. So what I could say, yeah. and there, we have actually produced evidence uh, to support this, is that the infant brain, like a four or five day old infant brain, is probably closer to an adult brain, mm. and I'll explain, than it is to the brain of a child in middle childhood. Mm. And the reason is, that in middle childhood, that's essentially the time when, um, actually, let me just change that a bit. I should say from uh, preschool yeah. right to middle school, uh, the brain is highly plastic and there are many more neurons that are, than are necessary. Right. And that we are now laying down during that period of life connect connections that will penultimately become uh, automated and the reason for automation is because that the energy capacity of the brain uh, is highly limited. Yeah. So you're going to be focusing on things, one needs to be focusing on things that require less energy. That's what attention is all about, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, as things become automated, there's that much less energy that's required. And it's so, and it actually answers a problem that goes back a long, long time to the issue of localization of function, which is Broca in 1850-something or other, yeah. um, had a patient he called Ta, who had damage to what has penultimately been called Broca's area. Mm -hmm. And that prevented uh, his, Broca's patient um, from uh, being able to speak. Upon autopsy, they found that that area was damaged. My problem with that is, well, you can have a patient with um, a um, damage to Broca's area post-stroke, an adult, and six months later, this person is talking. Yeah. So it kind of is a, is a, is a, a superficial... Neuroplasticity is possible, not possible, it happens throughout mm -hmm. the lifespan, but the essential issue of child development is to lay down automatic networks to reduce uh, the energy required to perform mental operations. But it does not necessarily mean that it's, uh, it's something that's locked down and is not changeable, very far from it. So pruning actually is something that really starts happening post um, middle, middle yeah. school or middle childhood. And bearing in mind that the teenage brain is kind of uh, not exactly functioning <laughs> with its frontal right, lobes right, yeah. the way it's supposed to. Um, we know that from um, 
having children who have learned how to drive cars and they were males especially and they were under if they were under the age of 26 actuaries without knowing much about neuroscience know that these guys under the age of 26 are more likely right. to have car accidents so the insurance rates are higher but that's essentially the reason for it which is um that's the last part of brain development is the frontal lobes so plasticity then is something that does not really start oh, i'm sorry i should yeah. say that pruning is something that does not really start during fetal neonatal and infant development okay but okay. does later and on. so so let's uh, think about the education component here in, in uh, so you say that basic principles have emerged that allow application to educational practice especially in the early years from birth to five years that plays great responsibility for brain development in the hands of parents and early childhood teachers. And so, so really, even before going to school, there is a massive uh, amount of brain development. And so interaction, social development, uh, all the stimuli that is happening at that time all appear to be significantly important, right? And it's not just the environment, but also what you're actually interacting with. And once you are in school, you know, how, how do you differentiate? So getting into school and that first five years of schooling, uh, where do you see the emphasis has to be placed? Well, it probably would not be a bad idea for teachers to learn something about uh neurological development of the child. And I don't mean a course in introduction to psychology. I mean, uh, an, a course yeah. in applied neuroscience. Where do you place pictures on a page? What kind of colors do you use? Uh, how large should the print be? This is like more on the ergonomic side of things. Um, do you really want to have children sitting in a classroom for 50 minute mm. sessions at a time when human capacity or information has a very steep decline over the course of the first 20 minutes after you introduce information. Uh, well known over many, many years, going back to the work even of Mackworth yeah. in the 1940s. So uh, that's kind of missing. And it would be a really great idea to have a field of neuroeducation. Maybe someone will listen to this and maybe <laughs> we'll do it. Uh, but yeah, the neurosciences need to be integrated into the classroom somehow or another. Second important thing, that relates to this, the, the same issue at hand uh, is probably best explained by indicating that uh, motor function, the control yeah. of motor function, movement in particular, is located in the frontal lobes. And the frontal lobes, of course, are responsible for executive function, decision-making, uh, uh, suppression, actually, of emotionality, mm. uh, which um, youngsters kind of learn when they hit the age of two and they learn the magic two-letter word, <laughs> no. Um, right. Well, my children are uh, in their 40s, uh, most of them. And um, I, I haven't forgotten about the terrible twos. <laughs> however, yeah, um, however, uh, what's in critically important to indicate is that when, if we were to record cellular function in the motor strip of the brain, during the execution of a movement, such as an arm reaching or kicking a leg, there's no activity. So what's controlling that movement? The answer is that the activity of the brain in performing in the performance of a movement occurs during the 
pre and the actual planning of the movement itself. Right. So the the issue of organizing thoughts and cognition and planning, these are the kinds of things that teachers should be dealing with. First of all, kids need to move. It, it um, movement facilitates facilitates um, brain metabolism and brain metabolism makes children learning ready. So not a bad idea to have them move. I'd love to see classrooms uh, that consisted of desks and instead of seats, a treadmill. Yeah. So the kids would, you'd be no ADHD if, um, that would be manifested in the classroom in a situation like that. Right. However, the point, the point is that the function of early childhood education is to lay down networks, to make things, to automate there's nothing wrong with drill. To uh, and the, so the times tables or learning how to spell, yeah, uh, uh, with repetitive kinds of things. Because all you're really doing is laying down automated networks, and that reduces the need for energy in the brain, and that then makes the brain available to learn new things with greater ease. So if we had more time, I, I would I'd love to expand on this. But the answer to your, your direct answer to your question is <clears throat> the neurosciences need to be integrated yeah. in very practical ways into classroom and curriculum instruction. Yeah, the, you know, the, the connection between physical activity and cognition uh, is a very important one. And I know that you have done a lot of work in this area. Uh, I also wondered, you know, there, there could be some evolutionary basis for this, right? Uh, when we started off, uh, probably the ones who are physically uh, good, uh, you know, in terms of chasing down animals and, and hunting and so on, uh, would have been selected. Um, only later on, we had all these fancy apps. We haven't, you know, had any, any need to think about general theory of relativity 50,000 years ago. Uh, so all these fancy apps we put on, uh, it's sort of a later application, right? Um, and so it, it makes sort of intuitive sense, at least to me, without knowing much about it, that uh, physical activity could be uh, inherently connected with uh, cognitive capabilities of the brain. Well, of course, um, for a number of reasons. If without getting into uh, politics, wrote a book. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, in, in, uh, entitled, It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. And um, the point of that is that if you decide you're going to hunt yeah. family alone, you're either going to wind up seriously dead or uh, certainly ineffective as a hunter. But if you do so, that is, if oops, then uh, you're more likely to come back with, first of all, more food, feed the village, support your family, as well as everyone else. It's a cooperative venture. Mm -hmm. A cooperative venture, you're going to need some way of communicating between members of that cooperative venture. And that would then indicate that there's a need for communicative, communicative skills. Mm -hmm. So we human beings have that in the form of verbal language. Whales, dolphins, well, essentially whales, uh, do cooperative uh, uh, fishing as well. Yeah. So they do bubbles which serve as, um, um, as a kind of capt a capturing device, almost like a net to gather fish that they then share among themselves. Um, seals can do the same sort of thing as well. So 
cooperation has something to do with language. As it relates to being living in a village, well, um, or uh, hunting hunter-gatherers, yeah. uh, we still have the need for communication, but we have the need for developing tools. Right. And we have the need for uh, bipedalism, not a natural thing, yeah, actually. Yeah. Bipedalism causes a, a lot of damage to um, uh, osseous structures, the spine and knees especially. <laughs> but we, we have that so that we can walk, we can run, we can get away from danger. Um, but as I said before, the, the uh, application of, uh, motor, uh, of motor function, or rather uh, motor, requires, motor act behavior, I should say, requires pre-planning. Yeah. And if you're pre-planning, you're dealing with a cognitive skill. And cognition involves sensation, perception, thinking, language, memory. And all of these things are very much part of the issue of pre-planning a motor action. Have I seen this before? Is it dangerous? Oh my God, the last time I touched my hand on a radiator, I burned myself. I won't do that again. Um, so cognition and motor activity interact, as I said at the outset, in profound ways, and you really can't have uh, one without the other. Actually, there's, there's an interesting anecdote, yes. uh, personally. I gave a lecture at Oxford uh, some years back um, talking about the thing that I do, which relates to movement and cognition and development. And um, about 50 minutes into the lecture, about 10 minutes before the end, um, I made the comment, um, if you don't move, you get stupid. <laughs> And as soon as I said it, I knew, oh, God, I made a profound error. Uh, because sitting in the audience was this guy in a wheelchair. <laughs> I didn't recognize him at first, but it was actually uh, Stephen yeah, Hawking. Right. And, oh, my God, was I embarrassed by that comment. So I kind of jumped off the, the, um, the stage, and, and I apologized profusely <laughs> about that comment. And he said, oh, please don't. Um, because he actually agreed with yeah. me. He took a while. He says that he played tennis every day, mm. Mm. almost every day. Mm. And I was kind of dumbstruck. And then I realized that he was talking about um, cognitively or mentally, if you want to use that word. And I guess that's the point. That is, if you image movement, you're moving. Yeah. So when I say movement, I don't necessarily mean, I, I would like it to mean actual movement for various physiological reasons of benefit to the human being. But um, it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can image it as well, and it will have a similar kind of effect. Right. right. Yeah, so you, you have some general views on education as well, which I, I fully agree with, and I want to explore this a little bit with you. You say that most currently prevailing patterns of education are heavily biased towards left cerebral functioning, and are antithetical to right cerebral functioning. So reading, writing, and arithmetic are all logical linear processes, and for most of us are fed into the brain through our right hand. And most education policies have tended to activate and prolong this one-sidedness of the brain. Uh, and you say that there is a kind of dampening down of fantasy, imagination, clever guessing, and visualization in the interest of rote learning, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And, and I think, you know, this has always been a problem in my view, and this is going to become more of a problem in the future 
because we increasingly have technologies, artificial intelligence, robo- robotics, uh, that can do much of this linear processes a lot better, lot better than humans. And so if we are churning out sort of human robots out of education institutions, I think, uh, I think we're going to have a problem. I want to get your perspective on it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the, actually, one of the biggest problems that I have with my doctoral, have had with my doctoral students, including uh, my current ones, hopefully they're not listening <laughs> to this, is um, they're brilliant, almost to a person. I mean, they're really, really smart yeah. people. Uh, they tend not to be particularly creative. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get into trouble because of that. And my job is to try to open up those vistas for them as I, as their mentor. Yeah. And in most cases, not in all, but in most cases, I've been pretty successful. And these guys have gone on to major careers and they make me look good. <laughs> but it's not without a big part. I've had an awful lot of stuff to undo. Yeah. Um, so, for example... Um, you, if I ask them, give me three uses for a brick and a coat hanger, they're going to look at me like I have two heads. Like, what does it have to do with what it is that I'm mm. up to? Uh, I don't particularly care about their application, what it is that they're working mm. on. As it relates to their doctorate, I mean, uh, to the actual degree yeah. process. I care about getting them out and turning them into creative uh, scientists. Um, that's an uphill battle. Yeah. And the reason it's an uphill battle, in, in, from my perspective, is because they've been through the traditional school system. Right. And the traditional school system, as you have indicated, um, is very much geared to linear thinking. And it has its place. So um, I had taught engines in the past. I don't do that anymore. (laughs) They drive me crazy. Um, You cannot... (laughs) My opinion is if you're going to develop a... um, a research and development unit in a, in a, in a corporate environment, hmm. do not hire an engineer as head of R&D. <laughs> hire an R&D expert uh, to do R&D and have it market, market-driven. Yeah. You put an engineer in, you'll never get the product, you'll never get the product out. They're looking for a 100% solution. No such thing. Companies are taking into account the issue of returns and factor that into the equation of the cost of developed product. So... It's because of the nature of linear thinking, I think, which is rampant in the school systems world, in public school education worldwide, and probably in private school education as well. Yeah. You don't necessarily get more for your money. Right, right. That's, as long as you're doing the same thing. Yeah, it's <coughs> what we... I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, in corporate settings, as you know, what happens is, especially, you know, engineering technology-driven companies, is that they're brilliant engineers, brilliant technologists, and to reward them for their performance, they get promoted uh, to senior levels, uh, which then requires you know, a set of skills uh, that are much, um, much broader and less deep, um, you know, if, if you look at it that way, right? And there is a mismatch of skills uh, that, get, uh, that get surfaced very quickly. Uh, and so, you know, this happens in every technology-driven company fairly quickly. Well, you're basically supporting the uh, Peter Principle, which uh, indicates that 
people are promoted <clears throat> on the level of their inefficiency <laughs> so that you keep on getting promoted until you get to a particular level where you don't do as well as you did before and that's where you stop and that's how corporations are run right uh, yeah, so no, you need no, just one more the, the, quick, uh, quick thing. So going back to the education system, what is your perspective? You know, how would you, if you were to change things, uh, and I'm talking, I'm not talking about actually high school even. I'm talking about, you know, sort of undergraduate level education. Um, what would you change there? How would you structure it to be more useful for the future? You're talking about on the college level. Yeah, the college so, level, yeah. Huh. Is it too late? Uh, Is it too late? No, it's never too late. It's just uh, <laughs> too. It's less efficient. Yeah. But it's not too. Because otherwise, you're saying that um, you can't have an adult learner. Of course, you can. I mean, there there's so many ways of 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 teaching. Yeah. That um, I'm I'm not a I'm a higher educator. I'm not an educator. I mean, I don't yeah. have a degree in education. But uh, as a an applied neuroscientist, I look around and I see the things that my kids have gone through, mm. uh, that my students go through. So in answer to your question, first thing is, I think that it would not be a bad idea for college teachers to be required to learn how to teach and to learn, independent of discipline, something about the nervous system and how the, neuro the neuroscience of learning happens. Yeah. So... Um, there was something like that in the United States. I think it may still exist. A couple of, couple of universities had it, um, but it missed the mark as well. And that was the degree called Doctor of Arts, hmm. where the people, I know Adelphi University has something like that in, um, on Long Island in New York, yeah. uh, where people were trained not in their disciplines necessarily. That was not the end result, but it was, they were being trained as instructors, as teachers, in a particular discipline. I don't think that answers the question either. Yeah. I think that people who, are, who live the life of science um, need to know how to convey the science that is so hopefully passionate for them. Mm. Otherwise, you know, why do it? Um, to, to be able to convey it knowing something about the tool skills necessary. In other words, if, if you're a scientist, well, um, as a scientist, um, my job is to do science. Yeah. It's to communicate that science. It's to teach about that science. And it's to train a new generation of scientists. All of it can be stated in one word, word and that's communication. Mm. And in order to have effective communication, either in written form or verbal form or in any other way, what you really need to know is to know how to communicate effectively. And so if any um, person gets hired, incoming faculty anywhere, um, then I think that they should be sitting for a semester or two semesters as part of their workload in a course in neuroeducation, teaching them how to teach, right. how to prepare lessons, how to organize their thinking and how to communicate effectively. <clears throat> and I think that would solve a lot of problems. As, but if you're dealing with things like affirmative action, mm -hmm. sorry for the political thing, I'm old enough to not care. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I, I think it's a disgrace. And the reason I do is because you can't throw people into the water and expect them to swim. Mm -hmm. So they need support. 
and they're not going to get the support from current, current faculty, maybe in education, maybe not, but in, in uh, scientific fields, absolutely not. In my experience with uh, numerous degrees over a 20-year period, I think I could count on the fingers of one hand the number of professors that I had uh, 50 years ago uh, who actually impacted my life and actually taught the material in a way that would really stick without my having to go over it again and again and again and again and again. So I think that's, that's a simple, direct, and appropriate, and actually not an expensive solution to make a difference, especially with people who are uh, academically on the border, on the borderline. Yeah. And um, and investment in things like that would go a long way. Right, right. In, in righting many wrongs. Yeah. So, in in addition to the the process of teaching uh, that you described, Jerry, it also seems to me that we need sort of a content redesign. Right. You you talked about you know the 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 real emphasis placed on sort of the left hemisphere hemisphere uh, areas. And if you go through a very systematic prescriptive education, your right brain is sort of sleeping uh, for 20 years. And uh, it's really difficult to wake that up <laughs> after a long time. And so, you know, it seems to me that uh, we, we need um, not only the process change, but also the content. What exactly are we focusing on in education question? Mm -hmm. What are we focusing? What should we be focusing on? Yeah. Well, we focusing on the same things we've always been focusing on. You know, the material itself. Yeah. The, the I don't think is the material. Mm. I think everybody can learn physics. I think everyone can learn everything, or mathematics. It's just a question of how long it takes. Yeah. That's that's the the intrinsic skill of somebody. But everyone can learn. If you if somebody has a problem or they think they have a problem, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, with mathematics that it doesn't work for them. That's not a learning disability. Mm. There's no such thing as a learning disability. It's a teaching disability. Because mm. you can get a seal in a circus to play on a keyboard instrument. Mm -hmm. And you surely can get uh, somebody to learn mathematics. Depends on how you teach it. Yeah. And uh, I'm the same thing with just about any discipline. Oh, I don't like history. Well, why don't you like history? Why? Well, if you don't know about history, like why are terrorists running around the planet, especially blowing things up in Europe? Do you not have a context? Do you not have a context for that? Well, maybe 7th century um, Islam took over Europe and then the Ottomans subsequent to that, and then they were removed. Well you now have a context for why people may feel however it is that they feel, rightly or wrongly. Mm -hmm. But I'm not interested in history. Well, why are you not interested? Because it goes back to our original argument, which is you're not communicating in an interesting, stimulating way, in, in a way that the human brain can memorize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the word is memorize. Uh, to be able to form circuits, optimized circuits, and therefore automatic we retrieve information in a way that's expedient. Right, right. Yeah, I want to touch on one other area that I find fascinating in your paper, and that's about language. 
and uh, especially second language, you know, how the brain processes, um, you know, somebody's second language. And, uh, and, and you say that, you know, sort of the whole brain lights up in the, in the case of second language. And I have read somewhere a long time ago that um, because of that lack of efficiency and, and uh, you know, I grew up in, in South India. I started picking up English when I was 20, 21 years old. And uh, because of that inefficiency uh, in the brain in terms of the second language processing, it sometimes shows up in a, is, as an accent as well, right? And I never, I, I didn't really know till I read your paper that you can actually see the whole brain sort of lighting up when you start to talk in a language that, that wasn't your, your first language. Yes, very much so. Um, bilingualism is a, is, a, is a fascinating thing. I, I, it's not what I do, but, um, but it is a fascinating thing in the context of what I do. Yeah. Um, Biling, uh, bilingualism renders the child delayed in um, both languages or three languages as the, or multiple languages as the case may be. But when they are caught up in uh, both languages, equivalent to wherever it is that they're, where, uh, where they're living, yeah. then they're equally efficient in all languages and it's one brain area that's involved and the optimization issues that we spoke about earlier kick in. Mm. But later, after the issue of uh, 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 the pruning of cells kicks in, we become less efficient in it. And efficiency is going back to what I said earlier about the issue of expenditure of energy. Yeah. You're going to have more energy expended if you don't have an automated circuit than if you do have an automated circuit. So you can take a person who is a professor of French or Romance languages for whom French is not his or her native language, yeah. and you will find gross inefficiencies, that is, multiple areas of brain operating when he's using French mm. uh, as compared to English, if that's his native tongue, but you don't notice it. Right. And the reason you don't notice it is because although he's delayed in processing, it doesn't come out in any practical way, mm. but it's there. Mm. And if you learn a language, any language, and another one on top of it, another and another, and next no difference how many, and you do so in early childhood, yes. it will stick with you for forever because you're automating it, and you automation is now a function of localization of function. Right. But localization of function in a particular brain region does not mean that that's the area of the brain that has to control it, not at all. Hmm. You can teach blind people how to read by hearing. Right. You can teach blind people how to read by putting a um, probe on the tongue uh, that transduces the printed word into electro electrical signals that would stimulate penultimately the visual areas of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So localization uh, in this context, Jerry, means so when, when somebody, you know, uh, growing up with multiple languages, uh, all of them gets a sort of specialization specialization in a localized area in the brain, whereas somebody who's trying to pick it up, let's say, 20 years later, uh, almost the processing of that that uh, language is not in the same area as the first one, right? Is that, is that what you mean? Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, it rep it's, rep its representation is in uh, areas other than in the native, the native tongue. Okay. Also, I should add, 
that uh, it's very much age dependent so that there's a difference between early bilinguals versus mm. late bilingual versus people who have acquired the language later on in life. Yeah. The other area I want to just quickly uh, talk about is also, you know, how does the brain process numbers? And, you know, I, I had some, some views on that, but after reading your paper, it seems really, really complex. So, so what actually happens when, when the brain looks at numbers, compares them, uh, try to figure out which one is higher than the other, so, so on. So what, what actually happens in the brain in that context? Oh, God. Um, well, we have a, um, so many components necessary in order for me to effectively answer your question. So I can kind of do it a piece at a time. <laughs> there's there's, there's, there's a, a significant difference hmm. between the processing of numbers, like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or processing numbers backwards, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, yeah. or counting backwards from 100 by 7. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not doing, I am not doing um, my Stop. father actually was able to do that uh, automatically. I have no idea how that happened. But that again, some, some people different. can. Some people can ease it though. Yeah. Well, I can't. So, yeah. um, uh, and that's different than numerical reasoning. That if you have a train that starts in uh, at uh, seven o'clock in in the morning in Boston, yeah, and a train in a Grand Central Station in New York at half past six in the morning. Uh, one is go the Boston train is going at 85 miles an hour and the New York train is going at 95 miles an hour. Where do they meet on the map? That's numerical reasoning. Yes. Um, using numbers applied to, that's not, that's not numerology, it's numerical reasoning. It's a different process, mm. a different skill. Mm. Um, if you're talking about calculus yeah. uh, that, uh, or differential equations, that's also different also partly involved with numerical reasoning, but it's not geometry. Geometry is verbal reasoning applied to spatial, spatial reasoning, uh, and it's a very different skill set. So I can't answer your question um, directly, but what I can say yeah. is that we try to automate numerosity mm -hmm. um, as much as we can. Therefore, the timetable, the times tables, the... Um, uh, counting um, mathematical um, arithmetical operations plus uh, plus minus um, times and um, and and uh, division, uh, and we separate. We need to separate that out from numerical reasoning, and each need to be taught separately, and then you need to put it back together. Mm. But at the end of the day, um, mathematics is a language, right? Not and so. Um, you can have a language impairment, for example, in verbal language, and not have any impairment in space in, in this more the more spatially oriented languages, uh, um, like mathematics. In fact, sometimes they do go together. So you can have for someone, for example, on the autistic spectrum, yeah, who um, in the case of Rain Man, for example, could drop matches on the floor, and you know exactly how many. I have no idea how that happened. Mm -hmm. Or uh, on what day of the week will um, the 3rd of July in the year 3042 uh, happen. There's an algorithm in there. I have no idea how they process it that, that quickly. Mm. So I can't really answer your question as it relates to 
arithmetical, mathematical uh, skills, other than to say that there are different operations that are associated with different components of mathematics, yeah. just as there are in verbal language. That is, there's a difference between expressive language mm. and um, receptive language. And um, I'm sorry for, for evading the answer to the question. I know I'm yeah, doing no. that, but it, I'm, trying, I'm trying to make, make a point. And the point yeah. is that it's so much easier to understand a foreign language than it is to speak a foreign language because yes. it's a different it's a different set so it's um it's by the same token it's uh very different reading music mm -hmm. than repeating music than playing music playing a musical instrument right. than singing uh, uh um so we're dealing with different with, with different things at the end of the day we'd like to integrate this in one way shape or form and that gets us back to our original discussion, yeah. which is how do we teach uh, youngsters and an understanding of neural networks. And by that, I mean, not artificial neural networks, but actual neural networks um, is something that a teacher needs to be playing with. And that is associated with drill, repetition, organization, creativity. Uh, the basic skill sets and and a memory yeah yeah uh, and finding ways of putting it all together but the bottom line is i believe that everybody can learn anything it's just a question of how long it takes maybe with uh, understanding the nature of string theory being uh, <laughs> really hard. but in in most instances yeah of normal life i think that it's uh, we're missing something in how to in how to teach yeah it's interesting you know uh the the insight uh what you said in mathematics is a language so again it, it is a very complex processing that may that may be happening both sides of the brain uh and, and essentially you know utilizing a lot of different sides rather than a, a specific um localized um localized thing right correct yeah. Uh, it's like um, a case that I once had something to do with, pretty well known, yeah. of a um, chorus master. I think he was in King's College, uh, Cambridge, um, who had a uh, brain infection and um, bilateral damage to the temporal lobes. This guy had a profound memory impairment, mm. wasn't capable of learning anything new. However, he played the piano, he played the piano, played Bach just fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was uh, he was capable of you know, reproducing um, uh, music from memory, right. but he wasn't he wasn't capable of remembering anything else. So what we need uh, maybe in kind of pulling all of this together, yeah. we need we need a way of taking these independent skill sets mm -hmm. like arithmetic and mathematics and reading and comprehension and spatial reasoning and visual uh, planning and all the things that psychologists look at in IQ tests, yeah. and having them integrated on an ongoing basis, like not just teaching mathematics, but teaching mathematical problem solving, spatial reasoning, pushing creativity, uh, back to my original uh, yeah. example, yeah. Give me three uses for a brick and a coat hanger. Uh, and, um, or here's a, um, a box of thumbtacks. Thumbtacks are out, and here's an easel. What can you do 
with the box, empty box of thumbtacks, the thumbtacks, thumb, thumbtacks, right. and a candle. These things don't go together. How do you put them together, and why would you want to do that at all? That's right. That's uh -huh. right. Yeah. Uh, so, so in conclusion, Jerry, you know, uh, just uh, if you look forward, say three, five years, uh, where do you see we will make the biggest discoveries in neuroscience, generally speaking? Well, I think we're doing it on a daily basis. I don't think uh, the textbook from two years ago is valid uh, in many respects um, today. Yeah. Uh, we've learned so much about um, how the brain organizes. We've learned a lot about networks. We've learned a lot about um, how the brain responds to external stimuli, like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Mm. We've learned to take people out of um, minimally conscious states. Uh, we've learned something about uh, brain-computer interfaces. Um, so things are changing on a on a moment by moment, moment basis. Unfortunately, mm. uh, it hasn't hit the educational system right. in the same way it hit uh, medicine. Yeah. So um, me having you know come out of the world of medicine. And having looked around at what the problems the medical field has, um, well, I mean, my, the institute that I formerly headed was looking at novel solutions to quadriplegia, to people who were injured, to um, exoskeletons, to brain-computer interfaces. But I can't really say the same thing looking at textbooks that are placed on children's desks hmm. Hmm. and how they're organized. I, I can't believe that... Um, we haven't, uh, we have technologies. I mean, people are using iPads and kids are using iPads. Yeah. Isn't that nice? But where's the information? How is it presented? What's the color contrast? What point sizers are you using? Mm. How much control does the kid have in the speed of learning? And, um, and why are you having kids in a classroom? Why are you not providing enrichment experiences? That why is there a resource teacher for special ed Whereas there isn't for 36 kids, 36 to 40 children in a classroom who don't have a resource room instruction. And why are they all together? Why do you assume that they're all learning in the same way? Right. Um, and on and on and yes. on and on. Yeah. Like yeah. So education is where we could make a huge impact. Um, so, so this has been great, uh, Jerry. And I really appreciate the time that you spend with me. And uh, good luck with all your research. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Take care.